Spiritual joy is this innate capacity for the heart to take pleasure and wonderment in this life and in the happiness of others, a kind of sympathetic joy, empathetic joy. It's the state that can allow for happiness, which frightens some of us, you'll notice, actually. We have some experience and then we wonder, will it go away, or am I supposed to feel this pleasure or this joy? It's a state that doesn't compare or isn't jealous, isn't afraid that somehow there isn't enough love to go around, that there's some lack of abundance in the heart, there isn't enough compassion and care. It's a generosity of spirit. Hello, welcome back friends to another episode of Heart Wisdom, Jack Kornfield's podcast on Ram Dass's wonderful Be Here Now Network. This is Ganesh Braymiller, Jack's assistant, here to open episode 202 for you called Mudita, Sympathetic Joy, all about our innate capacity for the heart to take pleasure and wonderment in the joy and happiness of others. You know how there's those people who as soon as something goes really good in your life that you just want to share with because they're not going to be jealous, they're not going to be snidey about it, they will be authentically happy with the beauty that is unfolding for you. The people who you say the good thing and they're like, yeah, I can think of a few people in my life. Um, This podcast episode is about how we can cultivate this very important quality for ourselves. And it ends in a really beautiful guided meditation uh, to help cultivate mudita, this sympathetic spiritual joy, as well as loving kindness, which really go hand in hand. Before diving into this incredible episode, I have to share my mudita, my absolute brimming joy for Jack having just completed one of his newest courses and one of his most fun and flowing courses called Transform Your Life Through Jack Cornfield's Most Powerful Stories, A 10-Hour Journey. This is a hand-picked selection of some of Jack's favorite stories which he shared throughout his teaching career, all of which are extremely transformational and given with beautiful lessons that Jack has wrapped around them to package them into a way that you can fully open into the wonderment and beauty that is all around us in this everyday life. Some of the stories told here are stories of the Buddha's last teaching. There's also the Arthurian legend of Sir Gawain trying to figure out what women want. There's one of Nachiketa diving to the underworld to meet the Lord of Death. And a myriad of stories on climate change, loving awareness, Jack's amazing teacher Ajahn Chah, and one of the Buddha's past life as a parrot attempting to put out fires with the water on its wings. Now, the main stories of this course are evergreen, so you can go onto jackcornfield.com anytime and take this course at your leisure. But if you do sign up before September 28th, you will receive two live question and answer sessions with Jack, where the whole group that's taking the course can come together, talk about the stories, and dive into the importance of how we can apply these stories to our lives and our spiritual practice. So, I will leave you there, fam. I wanted to thank you for always tuning in, for always bringing your kind and wise attention, and I really do hope you enjoy this episode, Heart Wisdom 202, Mudita, Sympathetic Joy. Blessings. So having spoken the last weeks about loving kindness and compassion and the path of the Bodhisattva, I'd like to continue with these teachings to speak tonight about the quality of spiritual joy, which is also called mudita in Sanskrit and Pali. And it's the capacity that we have as human beings to take joy, find joy, happiness, rapture, delight, gladness, and pleasure, in this life. 
It includes also a quality of gratitude. We remember with gratitude the people, animals, plants, insects, creatures of the sky and sea, air and water, fire and earth, all joining in the wheel of living and dying, whose joyful exertions, not separate from ours, provide our sustenance and life this day. This is from a grace that's written by Norman Fisher, the abbot, former abbot of Zen Center. Spiritual joy is this innate capacity for the heart to take pleasure and wonderment in this life and in the happiness of others, a kind of sympathetic joy, empathetic joy. It's the state that can allow for happiness, which frightens some of us, you'll notice, actually. We have some experience and then we wonder, will it go away? Or am I supposed to feel this pleasure or this joy? It's a state that doesn't compare or isn't jealous, isn't afraid that somehow there isn't enough love to go around, that there's some lack of abundance in the heart. There isn't enough compassion and care. It's a generosity of spirit. And when we open to it, it moves through us. Like the poet Rumi, there's an enormous generosity and humor at work in Rumi, fresh wild moments within a profound peace, drunken lyrics dissolving within a starry clarity, spontaneous pleasure and discipline as well. And Rumi, as probably the greatest spiritual poet that ever lived in some ways, or one of them, said he actually didn't write any of his verses. He just heard them and, you know, spoke them as they came to him. He was like a channel, if you will. But there is 10,000 of them or 50,000, depending how you count, short or long. He calls them the ocean of poetry. And I know from having talked to many other friends who are authors and writers that when people talk about their creative work, whether it's writing or painting, some people say, I hear it and I write it down. That's how I work, actually. I write, but I really hear it. Some other people feel it come up from the earth through their bodies and then write what they sense. Some people see it and kind of write down, but it's really clear that nobody's um, really working with their own material, you know. (laughs) And that's true in a deep way for all of us. So Puccini said, I've done nothing as a musician. I simply write down what I've heard from God. Or there's Mozart, who was this amazing young man, who's writing as fast as he can because he hears whole symphonies. What am I going to do? I better get this on paper while I can. Oh, it's so wonderful. A grain of sand. Uh, what, what is the line from, I think, Whitman again? Uh, A mouse is miracle enough to stagger sextillions of infidels. Just the existence of anything means that everything else has to exist. If you want to bake an apple pie from scratch, you have to start with the Big Bang, right? And kind of move on from there. Galaxies, solar systems, the cooling of Earths. Apple trees come a little later. Human beings much later than that. Oh, nobly born. Life is this simple, says Thomas Merton. We are living in a world that is absolutely transparent and the divine is shining through it all the time. This is not just a fable or a nice story. It is true. And we all know this. We know the moments when the eyes of our eyes open, the ears of our ears open, and we can see, we can see with the eyes of the beloved, those around us. The saints are what they are, 
goes on, Thomas Merton, not because of their holiness, but because the gift of sainthood makes it possible for them to admire everyone else. That's the real gift, to see the beauty in the eyes and the light around us. What we seek is nearer than near. Just to take a walk and breathe the air and feel the great winter storms that have come through, these big winds, all that rain, and then the earth that soaks it up, and to wander around today when the clouds clear a bit. Because, you know, if it were your last day or your last few days, no matter how bad your life's been recently, which it has been for some of you probably, if it were your last day and somebody said, well, you could have another day, would you take it? Almost everyone that I know would say, absolutely. And then they'd walk and they'd say, oh, I'm going to miss this place, this human realm. I mean, look at the trees and the sky and the, the water that's bubbling in the streams as you walk down the back steps to the bookstore, you can hear it. What has made you happy recently? Reflect for a moment. That you actually let that in. Or sometimes people will come to meditation and they'll say, I'm having so much difficulty paying attention and I've got so much suffering in my body or pain or grief from the things of my life. All the sorrows we talked about, speaking of compassion last week. And I'll say, well, close your eyes for a moment in all the difficulties you have and see if you can find one spot in this body of yours, this precious human body, one little place, even if it's just a quarter of an inch square, that feels pleasant. And for some people, maybe it'll just be their lips touching, you know, or their feet, or that little person, I'm sure, would have a lot of spots in (laughs) their body because they're still living in that kind of miraculous state of the world. It's such a beautiful thing to find, even when we're in the midst of trouble, to find the resource, the, the place of beauty, the the moment that we can connect with just a little space of pleasure. The Buddha said, there is pleasure in this world. Were it not for the pleasure of this world, we would not have the problems that we do. But because there is pleasure and there is pain, not understanding that they change, joy and sorrow, light and dark, praise and blame, gain and loss, We cling to one and fear the other. Yes, that's right. Thank you for your opinion. It's a good one. Rumi puts it this way. Do not sit long with sadness, my friends. When you go to a garden, do you look at thorns or flowers? Spend more time with jasmine and roses. It seems really important to talk about this quality as well as the sufferings of the world that we spoke of quite extensively last week because otherwise we can drown and we can forget. André Gide wrote, Know that joy is rarer, more difficult, and more beautiful than sadness. Once you make this all-important discovery you must embrace joy as a moral obligation. So one of my teachers, Mahagosananda, the Gandhi of Cambodia, he would say so often, he would say, if your spiritual practice does not make your heart happy, what are you doing? And there are all kinds of, he's tremendously compassionate and kind, but if you can't be happy, you somehow missed the point. To sense this is to take a kind of responsibility for your heart, for what you bring 
to this earth and being alive. As someone said, it's time to stop seeking approval. The universe obviously approves of you, otherwise you wouldn't have gotten to this point as old as you are already, right? One day, Zorba the Greek was walking along when he saw an old man of 90 planting an almond tree, and they take 20 years or more to bear fruit. He said, hey, old man, why are you doing that? And the old man said, I carry on as if I should never die. And Zorba replied, and I live as if I should die any moment. Which of these is right, I ask you? In the Buddhist teachings, it is said that the capacity for joy grows out of the purity of heart that is natural to us when we take the time to listen. This from Rachel Carson. A child's world is fresh and new and beautiful, full of wonder and excitement. It is our misfortune that for most of us that clear-eyed vision, that true instinct for what is beautiful and awe-inspiring is dimmed before we reach adulthood. If I had influence with the good fairy who is supposed to preside over the blessings of children, I should ask that her gift to each child in the world be a sense of wonder so indestructible that it would last throughout their life. Joy is one of the factors of enlightenment. You can't get enlightened without some joy and pleasure. How do you like that? Think, ah, the world's in too much of a mess. It's not okay for me to feel happiness. And there is suffering in the world, and we do need to hold it in compassion. But there's more than just suffering. There's also incredible beauty all around us. The Buddha speaks of this beauty. He spoke of it when he held up a flower. This was his whole teaching one day, is just to hold up a flower. Look at this. The flowers in the room tonight are really beautiful, the ones that were arranged. So they're already being held up for you. You get the whole flower sermon like that. He spoke of the beauty of virtue and integrity, how it rises like perfume even to the gods, like a lovely flower bright but scentless are the fine but empty words of one who does not mean what they say. But like a lovely flower, bright and fragrant, are the fine and truthful words of one who means exactly what they say. Verses from the Dhammapada. The beautiful heart, he said, the heart of the sage, which has nothing to do with caste or creed, or class, or race. O nobly born, whoever you are, remember your true nature. For when we become still in a moment, when we look around, we can see a kind of amazing beauty that is there. I think these rainstorms were pretty amazing. Quite wonderful. In the rainy season in India, the Buddha saw the patchwork of the rice paddies that were flooded from the monsoon rains, standing on a hillside. And he said to his attendant, do you think we could make our monks patchwork robes in the pattern of the rice fields? They're so beautiful and simple so that the the, the garments that we wear reflect this beauty of the earth. And so they do. And if you look at the robes of a Buddhist monk, they're cut in all these little patches that make them look like the rice fields of India in the monsoon. We get nourished from this. There's a story that I've told sometime earlier this year of a study done in London a few years ago 
in an area of London which was a high crime area, and high crime generally means that it was just really poor, and so people were desperate. And in this high crime area, the study, it's almost immoral to do such a thing, but the study was done in such a way that two avenues that had a lot of crime in the area, parallel to one another, some blocks apart, were taken, and one of them for a year was kept secretly really clean. The cleaning crews came in and swept the streets and tended the trees that were planted along there and removed the graffiti and took the trash away so that this boulevard was kept just beautifully. And the other one was kept, as they are often in modern cities, not terribly well. By the end of a year, it was noted in this study that the crime on the street that was kept beautiful was half of that as on the other street. We human beings respond to the beauty around us, and the beauty that we create also is a gift to others around us. So it becomes a deep spiritual question for us how to make our lives beautiful how to bring joy into our life and into the lives of others. One of the things that makes the Dalai Lama so remarkable is after all the struggles and the suffering as a leader in exile of the Tibetan people, he can laugh and be so joyful. People say, well, if he can laugh, if he can find joy, with so much difficulty that he's carried... How can we do that? I'm lucky enough to be living with a teenager. Not always lucky, but often lucky. Um, And she still has a lot of little girl in her. And we went in the city yesterday for a concert that her chorus was singing at the um, St. Mary's Cathedral. I think of that that great big modern one at the top of um, Gough and... It sort of looks like the inside of a washing machine, actually, from the outside, the rotor. But inside, it's magnificent. And they were really happy to sing in there because it's got great acoustics. But as we went over the Golden Gate Bridge, again, the main thing is, Dad, you know, we were looking. It was a beautiful, stormy kind of scene. She said, Dad, make sure you get get, get out the money so we can pay for the car behind us. Maybe we should pay for two cars behind us, you know. And we do that, and then she waves to them and stuff. That's what makes her happy. Albert Camus, another French philosopher writer, says, A person's life is a slow trek to rediscover through the detours of art those one or two moments in whose presence their heart first opened. We live in a way recapturing that beauty or joy that we can remember from way back that is a part of who we are. I remember being at this multicultural men's retreat that we were running in Mendocino, Maladoma Somme, this West African medicine man, Luis Rodriguez, James Hillman, Michael Mead, and so forth. It was a whole group of young men from Watts and East, East L.A. and Oakland and so forth, Latino and African-American, Native American, Asian-American, um, a number of whom had been in gangs and so forth. And we were doing all kinds of practices, rituals and drumming and ceremony and story and dance. And part of it was telling our stories, And you know how it is when you're working with young men especially. Some of them get into it and some of them them will kind of stay back and say, you know, what are these guys doing? These guys are really weird. We gradually got people through the drumming and the song and things engaged. But there was one young man in the back row. I called him Red Hat because he had this red hat that was pulled way down and his head was down, this young black man, and he wasn't paying attention, it didn't look like to anything, and didn't care, and was just kind of in his own world. And Michael Mead began to drum and tell this 
traditional and ancient myth or story, an Arthurian legend, about a young man who heard of a castle far away in another kingdom. And there was a princess in this castle who was the most fair and most benevolent and most just and most beautiful all of all princesses of the world. And, and the, there was a whole description of the court that she held and the graciousness with which she met people. And the, there was a young prince, of course, or a young man, maybe he wasn't a prince in the story, but he heard about this and he said, whatever danger it takes, I am going to go and seek you-know-who, right? That's how these stories go. And so we had a long conversation about what it was that men seek. And there were all these stories about the things that men had sought. And what came out of the conversation was really a conversation about how men love beauty. And it's not just the beauty of the princess, but it's the beauty of life itself. And so we had this whole long conversation like Camus speaks of, of that kind of allurement of how we search for beauty our whole lives in some way. And it's not just the beauty there, but it's really the reflection of the beauty that is in us. And after five days of this drumming and dancing and conversation and so forth, thinking that there were a few people in the retreat, nothing would come from them, one day, all of a sudden, we stopped drumming, and the guy with the red hat stood up. You could see his face for the first time. He said, I have a poem I want to read. And then he unrolled this thing, and it was sort of like, you know, a whole book worth of poem. And it was a poem of his life, of the ways that he'd suffered from racism and poverty and the struggles of his life. And the whole theme of the poem that unrolled and unraveled from his heart was his search for beauty. And when he was finished, there were people in the room who were weeping because it had so much beauty in his words. And it brought everyone together. Because there's a part of us that all longs for that. All of us that would love to connect. A love of our bodies, a love of this earth, a love of one another. The kind of beauty that even when there's difficulty around us, we can see it in another way. Because, of course, there inevitably will be. Rabbi Levi once encountered a man eating on the sacred fast day of Tishu Bav. Surely you've forgotten that this is the sacred fast day, he said. No, answered the man. I know it's Tishu Bav. Ah, then you're not well and your doctors instructed you not to fast, he said. Nope, I'm perfectly healthy, the man replied. And then the rabbi lifted his eye toward heaven and said, Look how precious your children are, dear Lord. I have provided this man with ample excuse to explain away his behavior, but he refuses to deviate from the truth even when it incriminates him. It's a different way of seeing the world, isn't it? What would it take us to release resentment, jealousy, release those things from the past that keep us from seeing with the eyes of the beloved all those around us? Because spiritual joy is something that's contagious. We catch it from one another. We offer it to one another. Another story, similar. Some years ago, on a sunny Sunday afternoon in Seattle, a young priest stopped to talk to a parishioner and her five-year-old daughter, Carmen. The little girl had a new jump rope, and the priest began to demonstrate the intricacies of jumping rope to her. After a while, Carmen learned to jump, first once, twice. The mother and priest clapped loudly for her skill, And eventually the little girl was able to jump quite well and 
wandered off with her newfound skill. And the priest and mother chatted for a while until Carmen, with the saddest, wisest eyes imaginable, returned dragging her rope. Mommy, she lamented, I can do it, but I need lots of clapping. (laughs) We catch it from one another. The Buddha spoke about celebrating, rejoicing in the holy life, going forth and telling people that it is possible for the heart to be free and joyful in any circumstance. Spoke of awakening like setting a lamp upright that's been overturned or lighting a lamp in the darkness. Whitman again, who writes... Why should I wish to see God better than this day? I see something of the divine in each hour of the 24 and each moment. In the faces of men and women, I see the divine and in my own face in the glass. I find letters from God dropped in the street and everyone is signed by God's name. And I or you, pocketless of a dime, may purchase the pick of the earth and to glance with an eye or show a bean in its pod confounds the learning of all times, and there is no trade or employment, but the young man or woman following it may become a hero, and no object so soft, but it makes a hub for the wheeled universe, and any man or woman shall stand cool and supercilious before a million universes." Whitman just went on and on in his spirit of celebration. And it was really about blessings, seeing how many blessings are in our life, the kind of gratitude for our breath and our bodies and our food and the water and all that is around us. What prevents our joy? What prevents our happiness in the joy of others. When I lived with a woman that I loved very much and had hoped to marry um, many years ago and with her two young children, um, the Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus came to town, to Boston. And so I decided to take the two kids who were at that time three and five out to the circus. And deciding to do it right, I got tickets for close to front row seats. We were like two or three rows back in the middle. And I took them, and you know how little toddlers and little kids are, preschoolers anyway. Things that are far away aren't so terribly interesting. And you can bring a preschooler to the Grand Canyon and they'll pick up a beautiful stone and say, look at this, you know, (laughs) because everything is alive. You don't need the Grand Canyon. You just need a rock. So there was a trapeze artist, and that was okay. And the clowns were a little bit better, and there were the tigers jumping through hoops of flame. That was pretty cool. But then the parade came, you know, and first there were all the horses that came right close, and that was great. And then the elephants came. And the elephants stopped the line of elephants right where we were sitting. There was a big elephant in front of us and others. And we were sitting watching the elephants, and all of a sudden the elephant right in front of us peed. (laughs) And I tell you, it was like a lake. And I looked at them, and their jaws just dropped. Wow, look at that, right? And then, after a little bit longer, the elephant pooed, right? Bowling ball-sized things. Plop, plop, thwack, one after another. And their eyes were like that. I mean, clowns and tigers were one thing, you know, but this was really important, right? Ah, and when we got home from the circus, how was the circus? Let me tell you what happened, what we saw the elephants do. Oh, 
that's so amazing. Just to be in a body is an astonishing thing. It really is. Here we have these holes at one end in which we stuff dead plants and animals, right? Grind them up with these bones that hang down, look, 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 move them through the tube and out the other end. Very, how did you get in here, into this incarnation? Zen poet Ryokan, during a lull in the autumn rains, I walk again with the children on the mountain path. The bottom of my robe becomes soaked with dew. If your hermitage is deep in the mountains, surely the moon, the flowers, and the maples will become your friends. I awake, morning, cutting firewood, filling my jug with pure spring water, gathering wild grasses, while the cool autumn rain gently begins. So simple and present. The quality of joy, then, as a factor of enlightenment, comes in meditation. You'll notice it as you sit and get quieter, and the body becomes lighter, and the heart becomes easier. In fact, in in the um, Buddhist psychology, there are five levels of joy. You know how there are lists for everything. You know, and there's the cool joy, and there's thrilling joy, and then there's overwhelming rapture, and then there's there's rapture with lights and visions, and there's all these kinds of raptures. And they just come as you let go and open more. But there's another kind of joy that's equally important, and that's the joy in the happiness of others. That when you see someone else's happiness, you resonate with it, and what comes to you is, oh, I'm so happy that you're happy. May your joy increase. May your abundance continue. May your happiness get more. What a nice thing to bless and wish for each other being. Mudita, the sympathy or empathy of joy. So over the course of these last weeks, we've talked about these natural states of the heart, of compassion, loving kindness, and now joy, and done some practices with them. I'd like to do a practice this evening that works not just with joy, but with all of the divine states. And it's a little bit demanding. Are you up for it? Uh Uh-huh. They say they are. We'll see. But it's also a wonderful practice. And the particular practice that we're going to do requires that you do it with a partner, which we don't so often do on Monday nights. Um, but once in a while we will. So without saying a word, I would like to invite you to turn to someone sitting next to you um, so that you can face them for this meditation. And can you see one another clearly or do we need more light? Is this okay? What do you think? This is good? Okay. And anyone who doesn't have a partner, raise your hand and stand up and look for other hands that are raised. And turn around in a circle because you'll see other hands. This is not dating. This is just meditation, (laughs) right? Who else still doesn't have? Put your hands up. Oh, no, 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 not too much. Okay, put your hands up and turn around. There's one person in the back. Anybody else not have a partner? Okay. So sit facing your partner. And the practices that we'll do this evening are a way for you to understand how natural the states of loving kindness, compassion, joy, and peace or equanimity are to your own heart. So let yourself sit comfortably and be aware as you sit quietly just of your own body. Take a couple of deep breaths, centering yourself. (sighs) 
And now I'd like to invite you to look into the face and the eyes of the other person gently. And if you feel a little uncomfortable or an urge to look away or laugh, you can just note the embarrassment or the laughter with gentleness and return when you can to the eyes of the person in front of you. For you may never see this person again. The opportunity to behold the uniqueness of this particular human being is given to you just now. And as you look into this person's eyes, let yourself become aware of this being with a beautiful spirit, an exquisite heart underneath it all. How if they were your own child, you would wish them well and safe from harm. They'd be happy. As you look into their eyes, let yourself become aware of the beauty that is there, all the gifts and strengths and potential. Behind those eyes are unmeasured reserves of courage and intelligence, of patience, endurance, and wisdom. There are gifts there of which this person themselves are unaware. Imagine what these gifts could do for the healing of this earth if they were really brought forward. Looking in those eyes and seeing their potential, let yourself feel the natural wish that they be well, that they be happy, that they be safe and free from danger and sorrow. As you look in these eyes and see all the gifts that are there, let yourself feel how naturally you wish that their original beauty and goodness can shine in the world. May they be happy. And know that what you are experiencing now is the great and natural heart of loving kindness. And now as you continue to look into these eyes, let yourself become aware also of the measure of sorrows and pain that is there. There is suffering accumulated in this life, as in all human lives, that you could only guess at. Disappointments and losses, loneliness and hurts beyond the telling. Let yourself open to the measure of sorrows, to the pains that this person may have never told another living being. And as you look deeply, know that you cannot fix this pain, but you can open to it with a spirit of courage Imagine them as a frightened or a child or a hurt child, how you would reach out to hold or comfort them. And 
And as you let yourself simply be with their measure of sorrows, know that what arises in you is the great heart of compassion. May they be held in compassion. See if you bow to the measure of sorrows and see this being, all their struggles, and let the heart of mercy hold them all. And now, as you look into the eyes of this person, imagine their happiest moments, their best adventure as a young child, the most beautiful things they've done. Picture that. See it in them, the joy that's under there. And as you look deeply, feel how wonderful it would be to work together toward a common goal. The pleasure of taking risks and conspiring in laughter and celebrating successes and forgiving each other's mistakes. The joy you might have in their success and being there for one another. And as you see the boundless creativity and beauty that can flow out of this being, the wealth of pleasure in these eyes and in each other's gifts, this joy allows you to experience the natural, empathetic joy of the heart. And lastly, As you look into these eyes, let your awareness drop deep within you like a stone sinking into the ocean below the level of what words can express to the deepest connection, the web of relationship that underlies all life. It is this life into which you have both taken birth, in which you are supported, that weaves through all space and time. And see this being before you, the consciousness deep behind these eyes, as if seeing one who at another time was young or old, awake or asleep, lost or free. This being who at another time may have been your son or daughter, your mother or father, your partner or friend, your lover or enemy, that in this great web of life, you meet again in the brink of time. And you feel the boundless time 
within which your lives are interwoven in the great web of being. Out of this vast net, you cannot fall. No failure or cowardice or confusion can ever sever your hearts from this living web. For what you see is what you are the great peace that connects all things. Rest in this timeless and eternal truth. And know that out of this we can act and venture all things and love all things. Remember who you really are, O nobly born. You are not this body. You are not this small sense of self, these thoughts and worries. You share this timeless, open consciousness, and you can see this deeply the eyes before you. And when I ring the bell now, you can lower your gaze and then pay your respects to your partner to this being who has let you for these moments see and remember who you and they really are. If you like speaking softly, you can take a minute or two if there's anything you want to say to your partner before you turn around. Thank you. It's like the boundaries dissolve in a very intimate way and the sense of who we are opens. You know, that was, I think it was um, eight or nine minutes. It's a long nine minutes, huh? Nine minutes, think of that. You don't even know the name of some of these people, right? You don't know who they are. You only know who they really are. (laughs) Anyone else, please? Yes. Vulnerable. Yes, it makes one feel very vulnerable. And yet, to be able to feel vulnerable... And still stay present is a great art because we've all been hurt or wounded in different ways and then we close up or we identify with the small sense of self. And to reclaim our joy again, the joy that this child has, is to learn that it is safe and possible to be vulnerable again, especially in the right circumstances. So it's a beautiful thing. Anyone else? Yes. Shape shifting. So you could see all kinds of different shapes in your partner. And thank you. Yes, in the back. A seldom felt sense of selflessness. So I thank you. Yes, one more. Permission to stare. Yes, you are now granted permission to stare. It's a lovely thing to really look and see. So you're welcome to do this as you like, not on the streets. 
they will lock you up or think that you're <laughs> really weird, these people from Spirit Rock. My God, what a cult. <clears throat> but with your lovers and your children and your friends, actually Eugene Cash, who is a teacher here in the Spirit Rock Teachers Council and a dear friend who has a daughter that's, I think she's 19 now, he says they do a particular practice, not very often, but once or twice a year, where they'll sit down, he and his daughter, and look at one another and drop the roles of parent and child and just look at each other as two human beings who happened this time to be incarnated in this particular set of roles. He said, we can only stand it about 10 minutes a year. (laughs) Because the roles are very important, but remember, they're only the roles that we take for a time. Zen Master Gensei, trailing my stick, I go down to the garden edge and call to a friend to go out the pine gate. Fall floods have washed away the planks of the bridge. Shouldering our sandals, we wade the narrow stream. I dabble in the flow, delighted by the shallowness of the stream. I gaze at the flagging, Admire how firm the stones are. The point in life is to know what's enough. Why envy those otherworld immortals with the happiness held in one inch square heart? You can fill the whole space between heaven and earth. I hope this meditation just reminded you of how near is loving kindness and compassion and joy in yourself and for the joy of another and the great peace of equanimity that knows that we are connected in a way that can never be broken. Use these practices as it serves you, as you will. So the chant I would like us to do tonight is this simple word, um, namo. In India, when you meet someone, you put your hands together and bow namaste to greet them, which means I honor the divine within you. You've just taken a little peek at that if you let yourself in these fast past moments. And namo is the root of that word, to bow to, to honor the sacred. So let us chant Namo nine times, and you can imagine what you would be bowing to in your heart as you chant, and then we'll go out into this winter evening. And I thank you so much for coming and for your generous spirits and your care and um, for your participation in this evening and for many of you in Spirit Rock. Na mo na Let the natural spirit of loving-kindness 
and compassion, of joy in the happiness of others, and the true wisdom and peace of your heart shine this week, and may you see it in every being that you meet. Good night. Thank you. Thank you.